Hey everybody, this is episode 145 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is Chris coming at you from Austin, Texas for this 145th episode. And in this case, for the first time, we're going to flip the script and actually have Sasha Golish interview me. As we mentioned on the last episode, I just finished my first 50 mile run this past weekend and Sasha's going to interview me talking about my preparation for the experience talking about the experience itself and then some of the lessons and takeaways I bring from from it both as an individual athlete but also as a coach. As I tell her at the start of our conversation, it's uncomfortable for me to do this, to certainly let someone else have the reins in terms of leading the discussion, but also I'm not a big person who likes to talk about myself So this is a bit strange, but I also believe that hopefully my journey can provide some lessons and inspiration for those of you out there. I also want to thank all of those who followed along. I had several folks send messages to to me both before and after, so really appreciate all of that. So we'll get to that discussion with Sasha in just a second. By By way of intro, I want to do something a little bit different this week. I was actually chatting with Kara Goucher this week. We were talking a little bit about her podium retreats that are coming up on October 19th and 20th. And she has a few spots left for her podium retreats this year. And so I wanted to help her finish selling that out, not just because I'm jealous and would love to go if I could, if if I was a woman, but also because... I know that this is a passion project for her and one that has huge impact on those that attend. So I wanted those who might be unaware of it to be aware of it and those who might be on the fence to hopefully get that little bit of a nudge to actually sign up for the retreat. So what we're going to do here quickly is actually bring on one of the athletes I coach here in Austin, Valerie Nydig, who attended the podium retreats with Kara last year. And she's going to talk a little bit about her experience Then we'll talk a little bit about info on signing up, etc. But first, let's bring Valerie on to talk about it. Welcome, Valerie Nydig, to the show. How are you doing today, Valerie? I'm great. Hi, Chris. Good to chat with you. I wanted to talk to you, as I mentioned just before this, about uh, your experience at Kara Goucher's Podium Retreats last year as you were in attendance. So first question for you, just what sparked your interest in going to the retreat? I think what I had heard and read was, well, one, Kara Goucher was going to be there. I mean, (laughs) Olympic medalist, of course, why not? Yes. So basically to hang out with Kara, but more importantly was that it was a group of women that wanted to connect. And as so many people don't get us runners who aren't in our little community in our world, a lot of times we're strange. So I knew that it would be a safe place for me to be able to express how much I love running. And did you find that to be true? That and more. Yes, it was about running, but it was so much more than just running. It was deeper. I felt so connected to everyone there, to all the women there, to Adam Goucher, to Colt. It was so much fun. So tell us then broadly about the experience. First of all, when you get there at check-in, who's there to check me in? The Kara Goucher, which was amazing. And the next thing that was so great was the swag 
have I mentioned to you the swag that we get at this podium retreat? <laughs> Tell it, me more. It is tops, Wazelle, Gooder, Ultra. I mean, Pixie Bar, everything you can imagine. It was amazing. We got a pair of shoes. Nice. Retreat. Like, that It was amazing. The swag was over the top. And we also got to train at the University of Colorado at Boulder, which was amazing. Beautiful track there. So how did it, how did those bonds form? Because I know you're, you're doing, you know, looking at the agenda this year, you've got different lectures as well as interactive workouts where you're potentially hearing from Shanna Burnett or, or Kara herself or Adam in the case last year. And then I might also do a strength workout to show kind of some of the strength workouts that Kara does to be a strong athlete. How did the bonds form amongst all that? I think what made it, I felt like it was a safe place because Kara and her rock star team, Amy, Anna, Shanna, they were amazing. Like, it's so funny because the one thing I remember is texting two of my very good running buddies and then another group of my running buddies. And I have felt, I felt like I had met my long life girlfriends, best friends, and we just connected. And I think that had a lot to do with Kara being open and vulnerable to us and making us feel vulnerable in a safe place. Like she shared so many stories that we could all connect with. And then it made you feel like you could open up. So many women did open up and talked about not just running, but different things in their lives. It, yes, it varied from running or athletics, but to children, to illnesses, to divorce, to wanting to get better, to your next goal race, to anything and everything in the spectrum of our lives. And that was amazing. So you just felt connected. It didn't matter how fast you were, how slow you were, how old you were. It was just a safe place where whatever the atmosphere was, the energy that Aaron, her, Kara and her group put out made us feel safe and welcome. What did you learn about yourself there? Uh, I learned about myself that I have accomplished a lot. That where I don't give myself enough credit, I am enough. I'm enough. And I've at a place where even just competing has kind of slacked off a bit because I feel like, hmm, I've made it. I'm enough. <laughs> like, I'm more confident. That's pretty powerful because, it's, we, you know, I've known you for a long time. I've coached you for a long time. And given your background, your history, a lot of what went into you growing up and becoming the person you are today, there were there were a lot of reasons for you to not feel that you were enough. And I know you've struggled with that for a long time. So to have this be a seminal moment and getting to that place to believing you are enough, I mean, that's just huge. That is life changing. And that's why I think I left there feeling like Kara, Amy, Anna, <laughs> Shanna and I were best friends because I was able to capture that feeling there. Like that's really hard to say, or it had been hard to say, but 
I am enough. Like that's something I learned about myself there that I am enough. I can't say it over and over and over again. Like it's pretty, it's amazing. It is amazing. And knowing you now and seeing like, I know you believe it. I believe it for you and with you. And that's, that's really cool. Really powerful. So, so what would you tell that person who might be listening who's thinking, well, you know, this is a thousand dollar retreat plus travel that can be expensive. I'm on the fence. What would you tell that person who might be on the fence to maybe push them over the edge? So a little bit about myself is I have gone through counseling. And so that's, I mean, I haven't gone in a while, but that's a pretty penny. So if you can sum this, sum up of a lot of what I've learned into this one weekend, it totally pays for itself for me to be able to come back and say that I'm enough, which I know I've had baby steps to work to get there. It didn't just happen at this one retreat, but it just gave me the push that I needed. But also the happy hours, the wine and the food are so worth the money. And the swag is amazing. But you also get, it was yes about, you know, having more confidence in ourselves, but we also learned from Shanna, like building your brand for those even, you know, wanting someone, someone wanting to do something different in their life, how to go about it. That was very, very insightful that Shanna gave us in her little lecture about building your brand, stuff to do, stuff not to do, how she did it, what we can do. That itself was a very, very, very valuable lesson. We also learned self-defense. We did yoga and the park. There was just so there was so much that we did. We definitely came out on the better end of those dollars spent because it was well worth it. We got much more for that money spent than I even could have imagined. And from what I understand, you'd be going back this year if if you didn't have a conflict. I would be going back this year if my niece was not getting married on that day. <laughs> and I was very disappointed that she didn't ask me about my running and carrying out her podium retreat <laughs> before she planned her wedding date. That's awesome. Well, there's always next year. Yes, it's on the calendar. <laughs> well, thank you, Valerie, for joining and talking a little bit about your experience. Super powerful. And for those that are listening, hopefully that's a good testament to what you might experience there. I'm only sharing this because if I were a woman and had the opportunity to go myself, I would, and I want that opportunity for others. So I'm sharing Valerie's story for Kara so that hopefully we can sell out this retreat as there's only a few spots left. But thank you again, Valerie. We'll talk to you very soon. Will do. Thanks, Chris. Have a good one. There you go. A little testimonial from Valerie on the podium retreats. And part of the reason why I share this is because I believe in what Kara's doing. I believe in her ability to change lives through running. And I want to support that. So this is all about supporting our sport and supporting and hopefully inspiring those who might want to attend and be able to connect to Kara and learn from it, as well as, of course, to connect to those other women. They're going to be there, 65 women at this retreat. And... As you heard, it's a powerful experience, so I would highly encourage you to check it out. Go register. There's really only a few spots left. It could sell out at any moment. In order to register, you're going to go to retreat.caragoucher.com. That's where all the info is, including information on registration as well as 
hotel and the lodging situation. Once you get signed up, the retreat actually starts on Friday the 18th that evening with a happy hour meet and greet where you pick up your swag. And then there's two full days on the 19th and 20th. You can check out the agenda at that website and get a little bit more info about the agenda this year. It does vary from year to year. It doesn't look like Adam is on the agenda this year as he was as Valerie referenced there in the past, but but uh, lots of other great speakers and interactive opportunities, plus obviously the opportunity to meet Kara herself, who is is the real deal, and she's a genuinely great person who genuinely has a passion for helping women in the sport through things like this retreat. So go check it out, get registered, enjoy the experience, and let me know if you sign up because I'd be curious to hear perhaps about anybody who goes to the retreat. Would be I'd be curious to maybe get you on the podcast to talk about your experience after this year. So there you go. That's quick intro now. I want to bring Sasha on again. She's going to interview me talking about my first 50 miler at the Squamish Squamish 50 this past weekend. Here we go. Welcome Sasha back to the show. Two straight episodes. How are you doing today, Sasha? I'm good, Chris. How are you? I'm doing well on the mend post 50 miler. (laughs) I will say, I will say before we allow you to completely flip the script and take the reins and actually interview me it is highly uncomfortable for me to 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 not only allow you to have those reins as a bit of a control freak but also to you know sit here and talk about myself for an episode so just wanted to point that out It, it is this isn't like my comfort zone right now but i'm excited about it excited that you get to dig in with me on this and hopefully we'll help any aspiring trail racers out there who may want to go try an ultra. Well, and all the people that run with you and work with you and everyone at rogue running, like it's a, it's a great opportunity for all of us to kind of learn more about you as well. And I didn't know that I was putting you in the hot seat. I'm sorry. It's okay. Okay. You know, it's a good thing. I think sometimes you got to let go. Sometimes you got to let somebody else take the lead. And are you going to sing the frozen song for us? (laughs) No. Okay. So it's all yours. Where do you want to go with this? Well, I mean, I think we should introduce your race a bit. So you did the Squamish 50 miler. And so I looked it up online. It had 11,000 feet of climbing, which I thought was interesting that they don't also add. It also has 11,000 feet of descending. Um, It describes itself as an exceptionally difficult course with a technical nature on the majority of the terrain where the back half is harder than the front half. So Take us through some of that description of the course and, you know, how it was, what it was like out there for you. Yeah. So, yes, the, the 11,000 feet of descending is not to be overlooked, especially yeah. for somebody like me who's not very good at descending. But uh, I guess first, just a bit of background on how I found the race. And then we can talk about, you know, how I, how the experience was in terms of the course itself. But um, but I was in Squamish, so my wife, her aunt and uncle have a place in Squamish, which is, for those that don't know where that is, it's just north of Vancouver, about 45 minutes to an hour between Vancouver and Whistler as you're heading north in British Columbia. 
right on the coast, but then it kind of goes up into the mountains from there. So it's just a beautiful place that has really become really an outdoor mecca for people that are doing mountain biking, rock climbing, kite surfing. There's all kinds of sprinter vans all over the place as people are living out of their vans, experiencing all that Squamish has to offer. So it's become this cool outdoor mecca. Anyway, so we were there a couple summers ago. My wife's aunt and uncle have a place that literally is a stone's throw from about mile 47 on the course. And so they would talk about how they would go out and cheer and watch people come through the trail. And, and that was really how I got turned on to it. And, and having been up there and run some of the trails around that area, it just seemed like a beautiful place to potentially do a trail run. So I filed that away and eventually came back to it. The terrain is really interesting in that it is technical and tough, but it is also quite varied in that you get, you know, some, you know, the opening six or seven miles are pretty much pancake flat as you're taking some crushed granite, some single track out towards the more intense stuff as you head north. But then the first half of the race after that is, is a little bit more like packed dirt and it's rudy, but more packed dirt. And so it's a lot of the flat areas in that section are really runnable. And then the back half is definitely more technical as they describe where you get a lot more rocks. It's a lot rockier in the second half. And, and of course you still have the roots and all that chaos as well, as well as, you know, a lot more up and down, a lot more single track exclusively in the back half. So really it's, as they say, it is tougher in the latter stages of the race, but it's nice because it's for those that want to have a really varied experience on trail, then you get that. You, you certainly get some ups, you get some downs, you get some flat sections and, and it's also, it only goes up to about 3000 feet or 3,200 feet. So you're getting the elevation without the high altitude, which for me was a plus. Yeah, I can imagine. I've been watching a lot of the mountain bike this year and just hearing some of the struggles of the athletes as they go into these high altitude areas. So last week I asked you before we did this, you know, do you think you're ready? So you're done. Were you ready? <laughs> I was totally ready. Great. And that's, that is one of the more satisfying oh. feelings about the whole experience is just feeling like I did everything, you know, right to accomplish what I wanted to do, which was, you know, to finish the race solidly and, and to enjoy the experience and to be in control of the experience. And, you know, I talked about trying to get 12 hours or so last time and, and I was able to get just under that 11 hours and 40 minutes. So, so I definitely felt like everything I did in preparation was the right set of things and it all paid off both in terms of the training itself and all the up and downhill work I did also in terms of nutrition and nutrition, hydration, planning, all of the planning I had done and around that stuff just worked out honestly perfectly. I mean, there were a few little glitches here and there, which we'll talk about, but for the most part, I executed the plan as, as prescribed. My legs were definitely ready for the experience. I didn't lose them, so to speak. Sometimes you can kind of blow your quads or blow your legs out completely on a course like this, and that did not happen. Energy levels were good. I smiled, you know, a lot of the race, and certainly when there was a camera on me, and 
you know, just had a really good experience out there because I was ready. Like if, you know, if you weren't ready for that course, it was going to eat you up and, you know, and spit you up or chew you up and spit you out. But, uh, but it did not do that to me because I had prepared. So take us through some of that. And I think I actually want to start with um, the downhill training that you did. I mean, a lot of people are intimidated by kind of these, these mountain races, these ultra races with the downhills and the uphills even because they live in a place that doesn't have, you know, that, that undulating terrain. And I mean, Austin's not exactly a mountainous city. So take us through some of that training you did. Yeah, I will say that that part of the the race, that 11,000 feet of descent was definitely the most intimidating part of the whole thing as I prepared or as I, you know, looked at doing this race, because one, I'm just not a very confident descender anyway on any terrain, much less technical trail. Okay. Um, but two, also, I've just never done anything with that required that much, you know, descent and, and pounding on the quads. You know, the, I think the, the most difficult marathon I've done has had like about 1500 feet of up and down. And, and that's obviously nothing compared to 11,000. So that was the most intimidating part. I knew I had to get ready for it. I was most worried about blowing my quads, losing my legs, and then just being utterly miserable out there. And so that, again, it was what I prioritized. And so, but one thing I did, interestingly, or I saw a study, um, I would, I don't even know the reference I'd have to dig it up now, but I read, it may have been something that Alex Hutchinson put out what, but it was talking about getting ready for descending and how, you know, a lot of people will do traditional repeats, downhill repeats, that kind of thing. Uh, but this study kind of showed that doing downhill repeats was no more effective than just incorporating downhill running into you know, as many runs as possible. And so that's kind of the, the mode I followed is trying to get as much variation in the terrain on every run I did. But also I did at least every other week a big hill session where I was going up or down the big hills that we have in Austin for long periods of time. And so for me, that would include you know, like my, my, my first session was like that was actually at least the one that I did here. I did one and actually in, in Boulder with Kara Goucher oh, while awesome. she was training for her, for her Leadville, for her Leadville trail marathon. So I did one session with her to kind of kick things off where we, we did literally downhill mile repeats. Wow. So we would run, run easy up and then sort of steady down. So I did that with her that kind of kickstarted my training for the, for the descents. And then in Austin, every other week I was doing a big hill session where I would just find a big hill. Um, and we have a few in town, Ladera Norte, Mount Pinnell, uh, big view out in river place that are anywhere from 300 to 400 feet of climbing over the course of a mile to three quarters of a mile. And so I would just go there and then just literally run up and down, um, for, two hours, three hours up to, I think I did a four hour session like that Wow. where, you know, I was just literally running up and down these hills, not fast, just trying to find a sustainable rhythm. So I would also go in some midweek sessions where I would go to shorter, steeper hills, like 200 meters, 15 to 20% grade. 
and I would hike up and then run down, not hard, but just kind of easy run down. I, I did a couple of sessions like that midweek where I might do, you know, 10 to 15 of those inside a, inside a run. And so just a lot of up and down, but none of it fast. It wasn't like hard repeats up or hard repeats down. I didn't really do any of that except for the one session with Kara that was more of like steady downhill miles. And so it was really just about getting used to that pounding and, and, you know, in the context of a you know, normally paced easy run that sounds really intimidating and scary. You know, when I, when I tell people in the last big session I did was 11 times Mount Bunnell here in Austin. And if I, if wow. I tell people that they're like, they're like, Oh my gosh. Yeah. You know, that's, that's like really intimidating, but you know, but to be honest, it wasn't bad at all. And, um, and there's something about, you know, and at least that I found in this training that, you know, it's really a, it's a different mindset. You know, when you're training for a road race or trying to run fast, it's all about hard repeats and you're really trying to push the limit at every possible opportunity. And I did some of those normal kind of marathon style workouts as a part of my training to work the higher end. But on these big hill sessions, it was more about sustainability. It's not about pushing yourself. It's actually about making it feel as comfortable as possible and finding that stride and that rhythm that would allow you to just feel like you could go forever uphill or downhill. And so that's really what you're working. And, and as I practice that, you kind of find it. It's like, Oh wow, I can, I could just, I could have kept going. I could have probably done an 11 more Mount Benal repeats that day. Because, you know, you just find this kind of sustainable rhythm where you're making sure your glutes are engaged and, you know, your stride is a little bit shorter and not as power oriented as it would be if you were doing a fast hill repeat. And you just kind of find this little rhythm. And and I think that's key to being able to sustain, you know, over the course of an ultra like that. Because, you know, if you lose, if you lose your power, if you blow your legs, you're done, you know, and and I never got to that point over 50 miles, but it was because I had kind of found not only done the work, but also figured out the stride and the form and the activation of my glutes in order to get it to work and be sustainable. So I want to come back to that, to that change in form. But the first thing I want to ask you is as you were training for these downhills, which we don't commonly do when we're, you know, marathon training or track training, were your quads sore at all those first couple times that you did those downhill repeats? For sure. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it was definitely, there was a, an entry to the process <laughs> that was initially a little bit debilitating, Okay, you know, where, where, you know, those first few times I did big sessions like that. I was like, Oh, the next three days or four <laughs> days were, were, you know, very, very difficult. And I wasn't moving around very well. So there was definitely a ramp up period, but but after those first probably three sessions of it, uh, then it just kind of became normal. And, and you know, I would go do it and then kind of be able to just go right back out and do something else. So it definitely, my legs adapted a little quicker than I thought they would. And, uh, and you know, and then I even, you know, like I got to a place that I didn't really think was possible in terms of just like, any of it, the climbing or the descending. For example, you know, I had done, you know, I'm using this Mount Bunnell example, but I had done one session on Mount Bunnell 
where I think I did nine reps early in the season and then I did 11 later. And, and I went at the time I wasn't looking, I wouldn't look at my watch, but I would, you know, I'm on Strava. So all these Hills have segments on them. Right. And so you're Strava's tracking your, your reps on these Hills, even if you're not splitting your watch. And, and so the first time I did Mount Pinnell, it was all about, you know, easy sustainability. And, you know, I finished it and it was tough, but felt like I got through it. Okay. The next time I went out, I felt like I was kind of keeping the same effort, trying to just run that sustainable pace. But I went back after and looked at my splits on that segment. And I was like 45 seconds to a minute faster up the climb at what felt like the same effort, you know, without really pushing. So it was just clear that I was getting stronger in ways that I hadn't really noticed until I was able to compare, you know, directly across sessions like that. Cool. So I think this actually relates into form. So, you know, as your, you know, quads became more resistant to the downhill, I'm sure your form also started to change as you had sort of alluded to. So talk about the difference in form between road running and trail racing. Yeah. And this is from my experience and maybe I'm, yeah, I don't know if I'm doing this right or not because there's many experts out there, but what I found for me was that I kind of think about it like downshifting, you know, in a car where like I would kind of downshift into my like glute, you know, dominant form and shorten the stride a little bit, you know, kind of push up through the glutes. And, and if I didn't feel them activated or working, then I knew something was wrong. And so uh, versus a stride that's a little bit longer, a little more power oriented where you might be using a little bit, you know, you might be using your glutes, but also using your quads to try to get that speed. And so, but I found that it, there would, there would be this point where, you know, I could shift into that more quad dominant mode, go a little faster, but I could very quickly feel my legs being zapped if I wasn't careful. And so, you know, I was always kind of playing with it a little bit as I got into these sessions, just to try to find that line. But you could definitely tell when, you know, in the training, when I had shifted into a mode that wasn't sustainable, that was too quad dominant. And the same is actually even true on the descents. You know, a lot of people don't think about using their glutes while they're descending. But that's something, too, that I found I could feel the difference between a glute, at least. I don't know that you're, you can ever be glute dominant on descents but a glute engaged descent versus a quad dominant sort of breaking descent. Yeah. And, and so really making sure that I was activating the glutes going both ways was critical, but typically, you know, on the uphills, shorter stride that, you know, was maybe a little bit more upright than it would be if I was pressing, you know, and going fast and using more quads. And then on the downhill, it's hard to say exactly, you know, what it was about engaging the glutes, but I think part of it was just trying to relax as much as possible, not breaking, which is hard for me as somebody who's a little bit of afraid of the descents, and then letting, you know, letting your stride flow a little bit more naturally, and then suddenly the glutes would kind of kick in. So using those glutes on the descents, also critical. And I'm sure, you know, and this is, I want to try and talk about the mental side now. I'm sure as you were 
trying to train these different systems and use these different systems, you kind of knew mentally that, you know, if something got tired, you could kind of switch systems and move into that. So talk us through the mental side of training for something like this. Like it's just so much longer than a marathon. (laughs) It is, but I'll say on one level it's, it is and it isn't right. It's, it's, I mean, my training wasn't that much more in terms of certainly it wasn't, I did not run more miles training for this race than I did for marathons. Now I did put more time on my feet, I believe, because, you know, if you're doing a 16 mile run on the trails and they're more technical trails, that would take me longer than perhaps a 20 mile run on the road. So, so yeah, I was probably on my feet a little bit longer and I had to prioritize getting, you know, at least a couple of four, four and a half hour sessions on the trail working the longer time, even if the distance wasn't that much longer. So overall though, I didn't feel like I was necessarily working that much more. It was just different work. Okay. And, you know, so obviously I've talked about the Hill sessions and for me, you know, those, I don't know. And part of it, I think is how I'm wired. It's I'm, I'm fairly good at just getting into a rhythm, into a routine and turning my brain off. And so a lot of those times where you're thinking, man, I don't know how I'm going to do 11 of these and just run up and down the same hill for 10 miles. You know, that sounds really boring, right? But, but, you know, once you kind of get in the rhythm of it, you just, you just do it and turn your brain off. And I think that ability to escape a little bit from what you're doing, it, you know, becomes helpful when you get to race day. Um, whether it be turning your brain off or distracting yourself with other things. The other thing I found that was really interesting was just finding variety and making it, even if it was maybe boring in, you know, each individual thing might've looked boring. I just wanted to have variety. So I, you know, except for the, the Mount Benel session, I didn't repeat anything else wow. during my training. I, I, I would go to different hills. I would go to different trails to do my long stuff on trail. I just, this season for me was about finding variety and, you know, being, having fun with that. And so I was just mixing it up as much as possible, trying different trails, going to hills that I had never run, going to places I hadn't run. And through that variety, even if the actual activity, once you got there was a little bit boring through that variety, I found it was really refreshing. So, and and so that helped me. And, and part of the thing I liked about the Squamish 50 is that it's a big loop. So it's not like I'm, you're doing three loops of the same thing. You know, you're doing basically 50 miles of all distinct trail. There was one section where I think we crossed over going out and back that might have been 400 meters in length. Wow. But for the most part, it's all, you know, fresh trail. And so, you know, so finding variety in training, finding variety in the trail race I was going to do. Uh, helped keep it interesting for me that helped me deal with the intimidation factor perhaps. But, you know, but I had my insecurities too. I mean, I'm not going to say from that standpoint, I was bulletproof at all. You know, I had plenty of insecurities coming into race week that, you know, you, you just don't know. I mean, 50 miles, like I've never run more than 30. And so going another 20 miles. And in this training cycle, I never did more than 25. So doubling that was really scary. And yeah, you have all the insecurities of that. And then, you know, 
you just kind of have to go one by one and work through them. Talk us through your number one fear then going into this race last Saturday. Ooh, it's hard to say number one, but I will say that one of the biggest things on my mind, and this is going to sound weird, I think, is that, you know, and this is that this wasn't that big a deal. It was sort of the insecurity of, does this matter? Is it really that important? Is it that big of a deal? I mean, the same weekend I did this race, Leadville happened. I mean, I had two friends at Leadville doing 100 miles in you know, over 10,000 feet in Leadville, you know, I've, I've got people, I know people that are doing much crazier things. I just interviewed Robbie Ballinger for the podcast. who just ran across the U S ran 70, 45 miles a day for 75 days, which makes running 50 miles in one day feel like nothing. So for me, there was this insecurity of like, why is this even that big of a deal? And I felt almost guilty that people were making it a big deal for me, which I appreciated at the same time, but it was also sort of like, is it a big deal? And so I had insecurity around that. If I'm just being completely honest of God, this isn't even that big a deal. Like, is it even big enough? If that makes any sense at all. So, I mean, I think it totally makes sense. And I think, you know, that brings up this idea of not discrediting what somebody defines as success for themselves. And, you know, I've always been, you know, I've always admired people who do these trail runs. And when you told me you were doing this, I was just, I was fascinated that you chose to do this. And I thought, you know, what a great way to spend your summer. Yeah. Yeah. And for me, you know, I believe me, I get around, I rationalize this and say, look, it's not about other people. It's about me. And for me, this was a big deal. I mean, it was a massive leap going from somebody who's only really done road marathons and shorter distances on the road to doing a 50 mile race on the trail on the type of terrain that I was going to face there because, you know, I'm terrified of descent. Like I was <laughs> had to face. I'm terrified of blowing my quads on stuff like that. I'm, you know, so it's, it, it was downright scary for me and it was a big deal for me. It was really hard and I took it really seriously and I prepared accordingly and so yeah there may be others that have bigger mountains to climb relative to that to make it big enough for them but this was definitely a big deal for me and hopefully it inspired others you know that certainly is always a goal of mine but at the same time it was also important for me to do it not only to to have a new challenge but also for me as I've talked about before on this podcast, just to, to find variety and to, to find something that was going to be fun and different and, and interesting so that when I do go back to the roads, I have a new, a new vigor for it. So attempting to run a a 50 miler is no small feat and you've inspired one. So, you know, small part of your goal (laughs) done. Um, Talk us through, you know, how did you present this to Amy and, and balancing your training? I mean, you've got three kids and you've got a full-time job. Like how did you present this to Amy in terms of going after this goal? <laughs> oh man. <laughs> oh God. That's a, uh, that's a funny one. So, well, I mean, as it is with most of my goals, I kind of decide what they're going to be and then tell her and hope she agrees. Uh, <laughs> I, I think she Worked would out so probably far. prefer a little bit more collaboration on some of these things, <laughs> but 
to be fair, I did start talking to about talking to her about it a year in advance. And and I did account for the fact that, you know, this would be an opportunity for her to see family as well. So so I was trying to kill two birds with one stone. But um, but, you know, for me, that part of the equation is pretty normal in, in a sense that we both have big goals. She runs marathons. I run marathons. It's a part of our life with our kids to also have individual pursuits that require time away from them. And, you know, we have a standing babysitter that comes on Saturday morning so we can get in our long runs. I mean, we do that kind of stuff because we're fortunate to have the resources to do it, but also because we believe that if we pursue our own dreams and goals, that we'll be better parents and that we'll inspire children. So that part of the equation at this point, isn't that big a deal. And because this wasn't really taking that much more time, there were a few mornings where I was out a little bit longer than normal because I was going to do a longer trail session. But for the most part, it didn't really interfere with, with our, with our normal lives more than it would training for a marathon. So, you know, so I felt like that part of it was pretty manageable. She did think I was crazy, I think, to, to do this, you know, I mean, I, I don't remember the exact conversation that we had when I told her about it, but I, I could probably replicate the fact that she just asked me why, why would you want to do that? That's, that just seems nuts. And, but she is, she is forgiving in a sense that she doesn't always have to understand why for me in order to support me in it. And I appreciate that very much about, about our relationship. So anyway, so it worked out and, she was great. I mean, she was great, not only in training, very supportive, but also on race day itself. I think she was more nervous than I was on Friday, the day before the race, which was kind of funny. But she was out there cheering, got to see her a couple times on the course. And that was was a huge lift oh, great. and was super supportive that whole week and weekend, which which was obviously helpful. And it made it made it so much easier, but also more fulfilling in a sense to have shared it with her. And was her family, given that their house was at mile 47, were they there for you at mile 47? They were. They had awesome. launch chair, chair out and, and cheering and took a couple pictures as we came down the trail there. And by that point, we'd actually come out of all the hard stuff. And it was just a short little downhill trail section. And then you hit the roads basically for a, a little bit more to the finish. And so... It was good to see them because I knew once I saw them, it was the hard part was over. And so, yeah, they were out there. They were great too. Her aunt and uncle are super active people. So they, they, they would, you know, they get it at some level and, um, and they also, you know, were super hospitable, you know, did everything you could ask for helping me, you know, prepare as well as giving me a bed to sleep on. So it was it was really cool to share it with them, and they came down to the finish line after that, and and were cheering on me, and we had some other rogues out there as well, so that was cool. So finish line, I you know I creep you on social media. It's true. <laughs> I, I love this quote that you posted um, on Facebook. It was teamwork and friendship in their purest forms, and I'm so very grateful to have shared this experience with him. And there's this fantastic yeah. picture of the two of you hugging at the end of the race. So. It, I mean, talk, take me through those emotions of spending a day with your friend like that. <laughs> that was really, honestly, one of the 
well, the coolest part maybe, and and really unexpected. You know, Travis Gillespie is a fellow rogue, and he was training for it as well. We had four doing the fifty miler, and we had three doing races the next day. Two doing the fifty k, and one doing the twenty three k. And so Travis had had been preparing as well, and but he's done fifty milers before. He's done a hundred k, which is sixty four miles. So he's he's an experienced trail runner and probably i would say more predominantly a trail racer than he would be a road racer and and so and we had done separate training for the most part so i assumed he would not be with me at all that he would be ahead of me on race day i talked to him a little bit the day before just to kind of try to figure out his plan so i knew whether or not to you know how far to be behind him when we started and had to gauge my own initial paces as we started those first miles. And so we kind of chatted a little bit about our initial plans and basically agreed to at least start together because we had pretty similar plans. And the first six miles of the race are pretty flat. And then you hit the single track and things start to, to undulate from there. So I just assumed we might share a few miles and then go our separate ways, which would have been totally fine. And I assumed you would just, take off and kill me. He's much better to center than I am. And so we get out there, we're together at the beginning and actually all four of us, all four of the road group, we kind of did the first mile together, which was really cool. Uh, but then one guy went ahead cause he had a little faster plan. And one of our, our, our woman who did it, she backed off a little bit and then it was Travis and I together. We hit the first climb, which was about mile 10, just a, uh, climb you have to that's steep enough where you just have to hike it so we were hiking it up together we got to the top got over the top hit that first descent and he was gone and i was like well and and not gone gone you know he was just ahead of me and i was like well there you go that's it all 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 solo from here on in (laughs) and then i get to the bottom of that climb which was fairly short at that point and he had waited for me and and you know, it wasn't that long, but he had waited for me. And I was like, Hey man, thanks for waiting, but you didn't have to do that. You know, feel free to, to take off, run your own race. He's like, no man, it's all good. It's like the, the Hills later will be much better together. And so, so then we kind of stay together till the next eight season, which was about 12. And there he was, he had uh, his, his wife there who was helping him with crewing. And so she had basically a, a new bladder for him and a new you know, set of bottles and stuff. So he took a little longer at that aid station than I did, but I waited for him there. And then, you know, we continued on together and I just assumed at some point he would, you know, we would separate for whatever reason. And, and we just never did, you know, I would kind of pace the uphills and he would kind of show me the way on the descents, sometimes waiting for me on the more technical stuff. But I, but I kept saying, I'm like, Hey man, if you want to go, you can go. And he's like, no, this is, he's like, you don't understand. He's like, we're good. (laughs) And, and later he would just talk about how he woke up that morning, just not really into it. He's like, I don't want to do this. I don't know why I'm here. And, and he's like, it really helped me to have somebody as well. So Anyway, so we ended up sharing literally every step of the 50 miles together, crossed the line in the same chip time, hugged it out at the finish. And it was just, it was a really cool experience to share with him. We didn't talk much, as I said, in that same post. I mean, literally, you know, there were only a few sentences here and there shared between us of little words of encouragement or talking about how much we had left till the next aid station or whatever. 
but we didn't, we didn't need to talk. It was just about, you know, kind of sharing that, that bond of footsteps together in the woods and really, really cool, really powerful. And, and that's one of the most, one of the feelings in addition to, I think I said earlier that I just felt like I was really prepared and that satisfying. The other feeling I have is just gratefulness to have shared that experience with him and also gratefulness to, to have shared it with the others that were out there. You know, the other rogues that were racing the next day, they were out there helping us at aid stations and cheering us on. And, and of course, with everybody that was supporting me either there or remotely, I just feel grateful to have to, even though, even though I had this individual pursuit to have, to feel like I did it within the context of a group. And it's just, I'm grateful for it. It's really powerful too. I mean, it just, it takes such an individual thing and it makes it so much about team and community, which I think we sometimes lose when we're running on the roads. Yeah. Well, yeah. And that's the other part that's really fascinating to me about trail. And, you know, I certainly know that there are those that are really competitive at trail and there's some people that ran this race insanely fast. I mean, 739, I think wow. or something, 738, 39 was the winning time. Chris Marco. Oh my gosh. Like I can't Ooh. even imagine like that's, that is a different sport than I'm that I competed in on Saturday. So there are those that do it, but, but there, it's definitely a different mentality on the trail where it is, it is more about helping each other. And yeah, you have your own individual pursuit. You might have your own goals, but you're doing it with people. And that's as much a part of the experience as it is running a certain time or getting a certain place. That's really powerful. Um, I, Part of me really wants to go run a trail race now, but I got some other things in the way. So just (laughs) before we switch gears to asking you to put your coaching hat on, and I think this is a good transition, take us through how you're going to recover from this. Okay. (laughs) If you need to, do you need to recover? Well, I I do. Okay. I mean, the the biggest glitch I had, uh, I think I referenced earlier, is I got two massive blisters on the balls of my feet. Just enormous. Like, they're the length of my thumb and probably slightly wider than that on the balls of each feet, which, you know, that's one takeaway from this is I got to do a better job protecting my feet, but I didn't. And fortunately, it didn't bother me too much on the day. I think I told you before we started that the right, the one on my right foot popped with about a half mile to go. So that definitely affected my final half mile. But at that point we could almost see the finish. So it didn't really affect me on the day, but definitely in recovery, those blisters have not been happy. I also got stung by two wasps out there, Whoa! which one on my calf, one on the back of my thigh Ow. Or, yeah, or back of my leg through my shorts. And cause I was wearing compression shorts. And those have kind of swelled up and gotten really red, those spots in post, post-race, which are kind of bothering me a little bit. Um, fortunately, I'm married to a dermatologist, so I am being treated appropriately, Excellent. both on blisters and on the wasp, sting, wasp stings. But first thing I've got to do is get these blisters on the bottom of my feet taken care of. That has been a little bit rough because you just, you can't walk around without putting pressure on the bottoms of your feet. And so it's been a little dicey moving around muscularly, like neuromuscularly. I feel pretty good. I would say that I don't feel any worse than after a marathon from that standpoint, maybe even slightly better because you're using more muscles. 
but you know, but the plan for now is to take this full week off and then, and then start back gradually running next week to, to rebuild base for, I'm going to do the Austin marathon in February. So I've got, I've got, there I've got a go. long, a long build to a February marathon that I'll start gradually. Hopefully blisters allow, if they allow me to start that next week, very slowly. So I've, I've had that. I've had one of those blisters. I didn't have it on both feet, fortunately. Um, and yes, they are awful. Um, let that heal before you start running is my yeah. piece of advice. Like really heal has to be totally yeah. pain-free or it just comes back again yeah, and again. It comes back, it's infected. Yeah. My, I don't want to lose a foot for example, because of, because, <laughs> because of blister no. infection, which can happen if you don't treat these things appropriately. So, so yes, the wife is helping me take care of those things. Definitely going to be patient with it. I'm not in any rush, but, but I, you know, honestly, I wish I could run today if I'm being quite honest. Like I kind of feel like I would like to go for a short, super slow, easy run. Like I feel like I'm ready for that except for those blisters, which will not allow it. So I will, I will wait and be patient until those are feeling better. So, you know, putting your coaching hat on now, um, you coach a lot of people who have ambitions of running a marathon or have run many marathons. Having now run a 50 miler, would you recommend this to someone as part of a long-term training plan? For, for road marathons? If they wanted to get better on the roads. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know is, is the short answer. The long answer is maybe (laughs) Uh, with, (laughs) I think, so for me, I, I don't know this yet, but I do think it has made me a stronger runner and I'm curious to see how it affects what I can do on the roads. I do believe I'll be stronger. I'm planning to do a, the Austin marathon in February. That is a hilly marathon as far as road marathons go. And so it's, it's a tough, challenging course, which now feels like nothing compared to what I just did. And so (laughs) I do feel like I've gonna, I'm going to be a better hill runner. I'm going to be a better, I'll be able to better manage the ups and downs of a road marathon with that kind of terrain than I would be without this. I also feel like I've, I know now better how to activate and engage my glutes consistently which, you know, for us road marathoners, that's a consistent challenge of keeping the glutes activated and working for you, which can make a huge difference in, in pace as well as the energy you're burning getting to certain paces. So I feel like that's going to help me. I also know that the extended time on my feet that I've had through this summer kind of also serves as a glorified base phase of sorts for this Austin program, you know, with, with a fun cherry on top in, a, in and of itself. So I do feel like now I have this aerobic base that, you, you know, is pretty massive having done all this work to get ready for 50 miles. So that I'm excited to put to use once I get back to the roads. And I think all of those things, you know, could benefit anybody who had road marathon aspirations, assuming they're into it and it's interesting to them. You know, I, I, never, I don't think you should ever do anything that just sounds miserable or that you don't think is going to be any fun or that doesn't intrigue you at some level because that life's too short. Right. I mean, so I wouldn't tell people to do it just to do it, 
But if it's interesting, if it's intriguing, then yeah, I do think it could set you up for a stronger road marathon down the road. If only just to give you that mental variety that you need sometimes to break up the monotony of road training so that when you do come back, your fire is bright. I think that's great perspective. Um, let's, I'm really curious about this sort of glute running, right? I mean, I can sort of feel it when it's happening, but do you think you can describe what changes in your stride or how you might try and teach it to people? I don't know that I can, but I do, I do think it, it does come down to, you know, it when you, you know, it when you feel it. Okay. And, and I do think hills do help you find it better than running on flat ground uphill particularly uphill, uphill or downhill uphill. yeah i okay. do think running uphill can help you kind of find it and you know again it's kind of this downshifting where you're you stay upright or a little bit more upright than a lot of people do a lot of people like to kind of lean into a hill you stay a little bit more upright and then just make sure you're pushing up through you know the balls your the balls and your middle of your foot up through your glutes first you'll know the difference when those things are engaged versus when they're not. And, and I think it's, and so for me, it was, you know, it wasn't about like reading a manual on how do you activate your glutes. It was more about playing with different strides and different forms as I did these crazy repeats up and down, you know, (laughs) and just kind of playing with it different ways, a little longer stride, a little shorter stride, you know, you know, standing this way, standing that way until you kind of feel it. And then when you feel it, you feel it and you know it. And that's when you can then kind of hopefully take that feeling and translate it in other ways. But, you know, but it does take, I think that practice and experience. And I do think uphills are an opportunity to do that and not necessarily running fast uphill, but just running uphill, taking your time perhaps, but just playing with some different stride forms in order to, in order to get it right. And, you know, to me that was critical because, you know, a lot of these uphills at Squamish, I mean, the longest, I think we had 2,300 meter, uh, sorry, 2,300 feet, which would be what, about 700 plus meters of climbing continuous, some more gradual, some steeper, but you know, you're doing that over the course of three, four miles and it's just a grind. And, you know, if you're quad dominant, you're going to be done after probably a third of that, a quarter of that. And then that's it. Right. So you've got to get to this place where it's sustainable. And I found, you know, I found that place and some of that meant hiking at certain sections. Cause I could kind of tell once it got to a certain grade that that was hiking mode. And so we would do this thing where it's like when it was a little bit less climbing, you know, a little bit less grade or lower grade, you know, you run and you kind of do that kind of glued activated stride and you run, until it steepens again. And then once it goes steep, you start hiking and, and make that work. So I just think you have to play with it. Yeah. So it's fun. You know, we, we chatted last week before I went to Edmonton. So Raul didn't bring his bike to Edmonton and we went for a run and Edmonton has this massive river Valley. And he asked me to race him up the stairs and he killed me because he took them two at a time and I ran them individually. And that idea that you talked about at the beginning when we were talking about, you know, engaging your glutes, you know, I found this moment where it wasn't, you know, it was the pushing down and the rebound and, and that feeling that you describe, I'm like, okay, that's how I found it. 
Now I need to go run hills to run flats to engage it. Right. So at some point, I'll bring down a video camera. We'll go film <laughs> you running. Then we'll do some biomechanical analysis. And then hopefully, you can out. share with people like, yeah, yeah, hey, here's how you could use different muscles, which, you know, road or trail are just going to make you a better runner overall. Yeah, you, you know, so. your glutes are a pretty big muscle. Using them helps. And, you know, if I didn't figure that out with this, there's no way. I mean, I would have been done after 20 miles, you know, so, so it was critical. Well, and you know, as my selfish girl side, I'm like training my glutes is critical too. I want them to look good in jeans, (laughs) but anyways, so in terms of experience, I know that you were using some, I believe it was peanut butter M&Ms as nutrition. So, you know, any nutrition strategy that you might pull from trail running and say, maybe it's time to bring some real food back into some (laughs) marathon training. That's interesting. You know, I was actually thinking about that yesterday independently and and I do think there may be some takeaways. I don't know that PMMs are the thing, but we should talk about my nutrition. One of the things, <laughs> one of the things I guess that I found, and I got a lot of help from my trail buddies Paul Terranova and Jason Brooks that kind of helped me, at least point me in the in the right direction on things to try. But one of the things I figured out pretty quickly as an analytical person is that you know you can figure this stuff out. You can figure out what your needs are and plan accordingly. And, you know, things don't always go to plan, but if you don't have a plan, then they definitely won't go to plan. And so, you know, so I did the work in my training to kind of figure out what worked for me from a nutrition and a hydration standpoint so that I could program that for race day. And all of that work was super critical And it involves, you know, sometimes doing some simple math, you know, like pretty early on, I did a sweat test on myself where, you know, I weighed myself without clothes, went went and ran for an hour, didn't take on any fluids during that hour. You put your clothes on before I went running, Before I went running, yeah. Then you, you know, then you strip down, dry off, get all the sweat off of you and weigh yourself again. And, you know, that's how much sweat and weight you're losing or weight and sweat you're losing an hour, which in the... I was told... Also to try and make yourself pee before you get on the scale. So, well, you don't, you don't want to, you want to try not to lose water that way. So, you know, before you get on the scale at the beginning, yes. But at the end, you want to try to basically keep it pure in terms of just, just the weight loss coming from sweat loss. So, yeah. So if you're going to go to the bathroom, you want to go before and then after you weigh the second time after the run, but you do the math on that. And, you know, one thing I found in doing research was that in the conditions that I was going to be in, that people lose about two pounds an hour, which of water, of water and fluid, which is about, well, which is 32 ounces of water. That's That's significant average. That's way more than you would think. You know, I know people, our good friend Aram, who he loses about three times that much. Oh my gosh. Is, yes. You know, he's a couple standard deviations to the right, but, <laughs> but you know, you're, everybody's sweat rates are going to be different, but yeah, I was losing as a quote unquote normal sweater about 32 ounces an hour. Now you don't have to replace all of that. You, you know, depending on what you read, you, you don't want to lose more than about four to 5% of your body weight over the course of any effort. And so you want to basically replace enough to keep that from happening, which works out to about 80%, you know, under most um, durations. So, you know, so for me, I 
found out through that method that I lose, that I need to replace about 25 ounces per hour of fluid. And so I was doing that on all my runs, testing that out, see how I felt. And it ended up working well for me. That's the plan I executed on race day. I think basically to perfection. Then, you know, and then and calories also are important as you, as you referenced, you know, they say you want to get about 200 calories an hour on these big trail efforts. I was doing that through a combination of peanut M&Ms, which you, you mentioned, and through uh, energy drink. So I was getting liquid calories as well. The race course had hammer, hammer electrolyte drink called Heed, which has about 100 calories per 20 ounces. And so I would get one. And their orange one tastes like an orange cream skull. Yeah, yeah. they had uh, the lemon lime out on the course, but you know, it's, uh, it's, okay. it's it was totally fine, worked perfectly. So I was getting about one of one of those twenty ounce bottles of that an hour, and then supplementing with P and M and M's, and and then I was doing salt as well. So I was practicing with salt pills. So I would take one serving an hour during my training, and that was what I ended up doing on race day as well. But I kind of dialed all that in in practice, figured out what worked for me, was feeling good on long training runs, practiced it when I was in France and did eight hours and that all worked. And so then I just, it was then just a matter of executing that on race day, which, you know, is fairly straightforward, but there is some planning involved in that because not all the, not all the aid stations are equal distance apart. And even if they are, some of them took one hour between the others, you know, some took two hours between depending on the terrain and the climbing in between. And so then you have to kind of map that to the race course and figure out how to make sure you're getting what you need between aid stations And, you know, so there's a little bit of math I had to do on that to kind of plan out, you know, how much I needed to have in my handheld bottle versus my hydration pack. Also, I obviously had to play with that equation and figure out how I wanted to carry stuff. And so I ended up with a, with a Nathan hydration pack with a bladder that had up to two liters of water in it. And then I carried a handheld that was 20 ounces Plus, you know, it had pockets on the front where you could put food and salt pills and whatever else. So, so anyway, so you got to figure out all those things to then be able to transport your nutrition and hydration. But, you know, I had done all the work to dial that in. You know, how does it relate to the roads? You know, I think the thing that I don't know that I would eat peanut M&Ms on a road marathon, although maybe the because chewing at fast pace like that just seems like not so much fun but but choking I, hazard i see it yeah, as a choking yeah, hazard exactly i thought you were using peanut butter m&ms not peanut peanuts which are, have much low yeah like peanuts. that's a high choking hazard yeah, yeah. you don't feed so, them yeah. to children at slow paces that's fine but yeah running whatever six to three <laughs> miles probably not the smartest thing so yeah probably wouldn't translate to that the roads but i do think some of the hydration stuff i learned i might think about on the roads, whether that be, you know, just how I plan my hydration in terms of the quantity I get. I've never really taken salt pills in a marathon, but I might bring that over because I I seem to have a lot of success with it in training in the trails. And, you know, I advise a lot of people to use them. It's just not something I've, I've ever, I've ever felt like I needed to use, but, but but yeah, and then, you know, getting more, making sure I'm getting more liquid calories on the run and maybe mapping that out a little bit more specifically. 
because, you know, a lot of times I think with the road marathon where we, you know, we have our plan to get X every 45 minutes or an hour or whatever, but we're, we're not as prescriptive about it as you have to be on the trails. And so I feel like there's some, some things to take away there analytically as well. Well, I mean, one, one of the challenges, I mean, trail versus road is, you know, on the road, you have much less control over what you're going to necessarily get in an aid station. And I don't think like, I would like to know if you're selling your Nathan pack. I'd really like to buy it. But, you know, not, you know, it's not common culture that people run with like these Nathan packs with their own fluid. So, you know, you are a little subjected to what's on the course and some things have more calories in them than others. And some people just can't drink what's on the course. So, you know, in a sense, you you have a little bit more free will and a little bit more control on the trail. Um, Unfortunately, Um, did you get... Did you get sick of those peanut M and M's? Like, did you have to have a backup food? <laughs> so, and can you still eat? Them? You, no, yes, actually, I have a big, I have a big oh. party size bag that I'm gradually working my way through this week. So, so I, I did not get sick of them. I will say though that I actually, the thing that I really latched onto late in the race was defizzed Coke. That. Yeah. Oh, so that best. became sort of the thing that oh. I looked forward to at every aid station in the second half. And so, so I would come yeah. in with an empty bottle and I would have them fill it like a half full with a defus Coke first. And I would, would kind of chug yeah. that back and then have them put electrolyte drink in after that. So that was the thing that was most exciting me about every aid station was getting that hit of Coke. And, and so yeah. I, I, not to be confused yes, with what exactly. like yeah, different people might okay. So, so I ended up not having to do as many peanut M&Ms on the back half because I was getting calories that way. So, so, so I didn't go. So I had an, so I had my peanut M&Ms kind of in two batches. I got, you know, one batch that got me through 33 miles and then, uh, then they allowed drop bags at certain aid stations. And so I had a drop bag with, more peanut M&Ms at mile 33 to kind of bring me home. And so I got through all of my first batch, but I did not get all of my second batch done, mainly because I was getting calories other ways. There was, there was also a big thing of Skittles at one of the aid stations, which I'm kind of a sucker <laughs> for Skittles. And I didn't know, I didn't Who know isn't? if they would resonate because they're kind of really sweet in the moment, but, but they did. I'm like, and my eyes got big when I saw them and they were only as far as I could tell at one aid station. <laughs> the mile, I think it was mile 38, eight station. And once I saw those, I'm like, boom, got to have Skittles. So I put back a handful of those, which was also, you know, awesome. And so I didn't go through all my peanut M&Ms on the back half because I was getting calories a few other ways, but I do feel like that served me well because, you know, they're about 10 calories per peanut M&M. And so, you know, you only need 10 of them to get a hundred calories in an hour. And if I'm drinking hundred calories an hour, then that's my 200 calories an hour. So it made it really easy for me to get the calories. And it was also, you know, super portable, you know, easy to carry, easy to put back at those paces. And I feel like it wasn't so sweet because you got the peanut peanut there that it didn't like annoy me, you know? Um, cause yeah, that coy taste. Anyway, so it, it ended up being the perfect trail food for me, and that was my go-to throughout in training and worked well on race day as well. 
Well, and the fact that you can still eat it and you are currently still crushing that bag, <laughs> you know, says a lot about your planning and, and making sure that, you know, because food fatigue is a big thing. I mean, it's not just in the trails, right? You know, even in a marathon, by the time people get to the end, they're like, I, I don't want to consume this, you know, gel, this, like this hydration, whatever that just, they're you're sort of overwhelmed by that sweetness by that yeah. point. Yeah. Oh, exactly. So, no, it's- and in, in my race in France, I remember just not wanting the super sweet stuff at all. Like my stomach did not crave it and they had oranges and candy and stuff like that. And I just didn't touch any of that in France. It didn't, you know, it didn't sound good. And so I stuck with bananas and dark chocolate they had there, which was amazing. I was Ooh, also doing it. peanut M&Ms there, but I just, I didn't feel like having the sweet stuff this time for whatever reason, it did sound good to me. And so, you know, I went there and tried it and it worked, but, but I also think you have to sometimes also just be open to what you're craving as well. Well, uh, yes, apparently you were pregnant <laughs> that day. Listen to your pregnant right. cravings. So, I mean, you were out there for almost 12 hours. I mean, that's a, that's a mental lesson in itself. You know, what will you carry over when people come, you know, who are bridging from the half marathon to the marathon, what lessons will you take away and share with them? Ooh, that's a big question. One thing that's interesting in thinking about that is I was just talking to one of my athletes today who's doing her first marathon this October and she's building up to 20. In Toronto? In, no, she's doing Chicago. Okay. And so, okay. so I was talking to her and she's, we're building her up first marathon. We're building her up to a 20 mile run. And she's doing that, I believe three times. And, and so, you know, pretty standard for a first time marathoner to go up to 20 miles and no more. And I remember when I did my first marathon building up to 20 miles and then wondering how do you go from 20 to 26? Like that gap seems, you know, almost insurmountable when you have never done it. And so she was asking me that question and you know, in this final week before the 50 miler, I had the same insecurities about 50 miles and thinking I've only ever run 30. I've never done more than 25 on a trail going twice. That just sounds crazy. Being out there for 12 hours sounds absolutely nuts. I don't even, I can't even conceptualize that fact, but it just works. You know, if you trust the training, (laughs) you know, you can always do more on race day than you can do than you do in training. And that's part of the reason why race day is the big event, right? Is that it is the culmination of all that work. And so you just have to trust the work, but it now gives me one more example that is, I think more compelling than just saying, yeah, just trust me. 26 is no big deal. (laughs) If 20 feels, you know, 20 feels hard because Hey, 50 is not that big a deal. Even if, you know, if you've only done 25 on the trail before that, so that is right. perspective that I've been able to regain. The The other thing that's kind of fascinating to me is that in reflection, and, you know, it's funny, like before the race, I was talking to Kate Barrett and I, and I was talking to her about, and I shared this with our, our podcast training group on our podcast for them. I was talking about how it's hard to think about 12 hours and think I can do that. That just seems like so long to be out there and doing you know, and quote unquote running the whole time. And you really can't think about it. And just like I tell people in marathoning, you can't try to, you can't run all, you can't run the entire marathon in your head at one time. You have to run it 
as cliche as it sounds, a mile at a time. And that's the way I approach this race. You know, I can't run 12 hours at a time. I can only run an hour at a time, or I can only run between one aid station and another aid station at a time. And I have to focus there because if you think about the whole, the whole event, the whole 12 hours, it's just overwhelming. And it kind of becomes debilitating in a sense, if you let you let yourself think about the magnitude of it all. Interestingly though, in reflection, as I think about what I did on Saturday versus you know, my toughest road marathon in my memory, they feel like equally long, if that makes any sense at all. Oh. In a sense no, that but yes. in a sense that the, yeah. the, the mental anguish and challenge of a really hard marathon is no is no different and and probably equally as hard as the challenge of going out and running 12 hours, at least in my experience, because of partially because of that preparation. I think if I'd gotten, if I was unprepared or if I'd gotten in a bad place and I was having to grind for 25 miles, it would be a different thing. But, but it, in hindsight, it didn't feel like 12 hours. It just went by so quickly. It was never overwhelming. There was never a moment where, you know, I wasn't, happy about being out there i mean there were definitely moments i was frustrated about particular sections of the trail that were gnarly and i didn't want to go over but right but the whole experience as a whole was good and positive and i was in a happy place overall the whole time and so it so now in hindsight it almost feels like no big deal even though it was how do you translate that to it's just that remembrance no matter your challenge you know, a four-hour marathon or a five-hour marathon or a 12-hour, 50-miler, no matter your challenge, you've just, just got to take it one chunk at a time. That's the only way you can do it. And if you do it that way, it's not that big a deal. Is that how you approach those sections you just talked about that you just you found to be sort of over-challenging in terms of what you thought you were expecting? Yeah, for that, my mantra was just keep moving. You know, okay. I, I talked about it. You know, I think we talked a little bit last week about you know, where you asked me about, was I ready then? And I said, well, I'm ready. And I just need to kind of fine tune the mental pieces. And so one of those things was getting a mantra for the day for me. And so my mantra became smile and just keep moving. I love that. And, you know, so, cause I wanted to enjoy the process and I wasn't smiling the whole time, surely, but you know, I, I smiled a lot. And every time there was a camera, I think I was smiling a lot of people are like, how are you so happy out there? Like, cause, you know, it just, it was, it was a conscious thing. I'm just reminding myself to smile and keep moving. And in those tough moments, there's one section of the race, which was deceptively hard for me. It was mile 38 to mile 43. That was a uh, five miles between two aid stations. And part of it was when we came out of the 38 aid station, the woman there told us there was 10 K to the next aid station. And I remember being confused by that because I'm thinking that would put us at 44, 45 miles. That doesn't seem right. But I kind of took her at her word. And and so when we got – but and then the section, although it wasn't as challenging as others on paper, it was kind of deceptive in a sense that it was a little more technical than some other sections. There were no sustained climbs or sustained downhills. It was just a lot of kind of rolling sections that were really technical. So it was really hard to find a rhythm, you know, and other sections. And sec- you're tired at that point. Yeah. And you're tired, you know, you're 
40 miles in. And there were other sections that were harder on paper where you might be grinding uphill for four miles, but you're in the same mode for four miles or you're in the same descending right. mode for a couple of miles. This was more up and down where you couldn't find a rhythm. The train was more technical, so it was hard to kind of keep a consistent effort. And so I kind of got really frustrated that, you know, on top of the fact that this woman had accidentally told me we had six <laughs> miles to go instead of five to the next aid season, I remember getting to was like 42 and a half and we just kind of come out on this this bigger gravel road to connecting to another single track and i remember thinking oh my gosh we've got like two more miles to the a station like this is tough and right. and we happened to see a person at that point who's like next aid station 600 meters and i was oh. like thank goodness because i was just <laughs> i was kind of in my probably darkest place of the whole day but, you know, but I kept coming back to that mantra. It's like, okay, just keep moving. You know, there were sections of the trail that were really technical downhill that I would get to the top and I would kind of out loud to Travis. I'd be like, oh, oh gosh, you know, <laughs> just kind of like verbalize the fact that this yeah. is going to be hard for me. I don't want to. And, and I knew, you know, and I knew that the only thing that was going to keep me from finishing was eating it and hurting myself. And I knew that was where I had the most risk was, especially on those downhills, was just getting a little bit out of, you know, out of my element and doing too much and falling and spraining an ankle, breaking something, whatever, hurting myself. And so I would get to the top of those steeper sections and I would kind of be like, oh gosh, here we go. You know, but then just remind myself, just keep moving, take it in little chunks at a time. You know, even if sometimes it was just two steps here cut across two steps here, you know, sometimes very bite-sized little chunks of just keep moving down this thing. And if you do, eventually you'll get to the bottom and then the trail will get better. That was my mantra for the day. And it, it served me well all the way to the finish line. So, you know, that, that's a lesson to take, you know, I've obviously learned that lesson in, in road racing and in marathons, especially, but it served me well with a different mantra on Saturday. Well, I'm stealing it. So thank you. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm a big proponent of smiling. There's so much science and research behind, you know, what happens when you actually smile and the chemical reaction you get, but that notion of just, just keep going. I mean, it's, it's so simple, but it's so powerful, you know, just put one foot in front of the other, break this down into smaller sections. I mean, it's not, it's not just for running. It's for, you know, any big endeavor we want to accomplish in life. I mean, it's great lessons. Yeah. And one of the nuances I would put on it in hindsight is that, you know, as I said, it, it wasn't that I was smiling the whole time or that I was even happy the whole time. There were definitely moments where I was frustrated. Those were small moments and they, and they certainly weren't predominant, but you know, part of me using that mantra was recognizing those moments of frustration and Oftentimes for me, I would verbalize it out loud. I don't even know that Travis heard me all the time because I would sometimes be in front and he might be back 10 meters, you know, or 10 feet or whatever, because you, you kind of want to have a gap when you're when you're on some of these trails so you can see where you're going. I don't even know that he heard me all the time, but I remember in that one section that I just referenced, just verbalizing out loud, man, this is tough. It's hard to find a rhythm. And just recognizing that and then but then immediately going to, you know, just keep moving smile right. and just keep moving. And so, you know, it wasn't that I was just burying those, those, those frustrations or those moments where I was annoyed or 
had dark times. It was that you acknowledged it. And then I went to the mantra and it, and it really helped me. That's awesome. I mean, I wish they had live streams so I could see you doing it, but you know, a 50 mile course with, you know, no loops. I think it's next to impossible to do something like that. <laughs> I'd have to wear Go GoPro on my with head. like live satellite, which <laughs> yeah, right. I've been to Squamish. There's sections where like there's no service for sure. Yeah. Yes. For sure. So let's so you know, you guys offer a, a variety of coaching programs through Rogue Running and, and I know you have a trail series. So Someone walks in the door now and they said, I'm going to go do a 50 miler. You know, what are the top five pieces of equipment that you recommend that they invest in or things? Well, certainly a good training program yeah. with a coach who knows what they're doing. That's important, whether that be with a rogue program or not. You know, the, the best advice I got from my trail mentors on this, this season was just make sure that your training fits the terrain and the course that you're going to attack. And I think that's really important on trail is that you mimic as much as you can, what you're going to face out there on race day. And so for me, that was all the hill sessions. But if I was doing a, a flatter 20, you know, a flatter 50 miler, it would look very different potentially. Obviously all the volume is still there. Time on your feet, all that stuff is still there. But I do think trail training has to vary with the type of train you're going to race on. So a coach and training obviously would be one thing, you know, and then, you know, there's a lot of gear. There's a lot of gear for, for trail. I've got a whole like trail bag now that I've been carrying around to these, these different trail sessions that has my headlamp in it with, with, you know, with its charging cord. I've got this Nathan hydration pack that I bought. I've got some, some paper, not paper, a cloth. I think it's called cloth tape that I've been using for, for protecting myself, both, you know, I use it on my nipples. I've used it now some on my feet uh, in, in the aftermath of this, this race. I've used it to strap things to my water bottle. So I've got tape. I've got a handheld 20 ounce bottle that I've, that I think, you know, has been critical salt pills, you know, hydration bladder for me, you know, a two liter bladder with a straw that kind of came out of my pack that I was using to, to carry the hydration that I needed. You know, I think you need maybe slightly different socks. Some people, you know, I found that the longer sort of mid-calf or, you know, mid-calf height socks really helped me, you know, protect my lower legs in, you know, more technical terrain. I did not buy trail shoes. So, interesting. so this was, this is kind of one interesting note on my whole experience is that I ended up running the race, the 50 mile race in my marathon racing flats. <laughs> wow. And okay. the same shoes that I wore for, for my last marathon, I, I raced the 50 miler in. Okay. And so that, that to me was a challenging part. I, I did want to find a trail specific shoe, but I just, I couldn't, I, I, I did buy, uh, I got a, a couple of different pairs that I tried or bought and, and just didn't find the right thing for me. I like a little lighter weight shoe. So a lot of the trails shoes are a little bit more shoe. And so I was trying to find something a little bit lighter that wasn't too light. And 
I found one shoe that I liked, but then the upper didn't quite fit me right. So anyway, I just didn't find the perfect trail shoe for me. And I'm continuing that journey. And so ultimately I decided to race in my road shoes, which I did in France. So I did that eight hour, 25 mile experience in the same shoes that I raced in Squamish. And then ultimately I did Squamish in those, those shoes and, you know, probably not ideal, but it ended up working for me because I, because I tried it out, you know, I'd been on a bunch of trails and, you know, some people might say my blister problems were caused by that. I don't think so. I think that was more an issue of it being really muggy back in the woods and, and my feet were wet for 40 miles. And if I had maybe had a dry pair of shoes to swap into, that would have changed the equation. What about changing your socks? Do you think that would have helped or were you doing that? I wasn't. And I had a dry, I had a dry pair of socks and shoes at my drop bag at mile 33. I did not put them on. Probably should have done that in hindsight. Might've still ended up with blisters. I don't know, but that is one takeaway for me of just needing to figure out a better way to take care of my feet. And I, you know, and maybe shoes is a part of that equation, but I think socks and then make sure, making sure I change into dry stuff. If it's going to be a little more muggy, which it, it was a little, it was, it was more humid than I expected. I should say back in the, I did warn you Canada is humid. You know, I, you know, I, I I didn't hide it. (laughs) Yeah. So I wasn't as prepared for that part of the equation because I was, I mean, I was drenched for 40 miles and my feet and socks were drenched. And so I was just, you know, you're running on wet feet for 40 miles. You're going to get blisters. So, so that part of the equation I need to kind of figure out. Um, But, you know, but beyond that, you know, but I, but I guess I would say for that person trying it, I wouldn't overthink it either. Yeah. You know, get a, get a good coach, get a program, buy a handheld. Cause I think that's probably the number one thing you need and then just go, you know, go try it. And then as you need more things, you know, layer them into what you need. I mean, I didn't buy a headlamp until about halfway through my training. I knew I needed it for race day. So I was going to have to practice it a little bit, but I didn't certainly, I certainly didn't buy that right away. So, you know, get a handheld, get a coach, and then, you know, go go out there and give it a shot and see how things go. I think you can start small before you need to, you know, to go all out with all the things I just described. Would you do it again? <laughs> <laughs> you know, the that question is definitely the million-dollar question I've gotten from everybody, followed closely by – would you do a hundred miles? That's always like the second question. No, so I'm taking do, your Kipchoge advice of like, don't, you know, what was the two, we don't chase two rabbits. That's chasing two rabbits. <laughs> exactly. Right. So would I do it again? Yes. Is, you know, am I going to be an ultra trail guy? No. You know, I'm definitely okay. going to go, go back to the roads for now. And I've got, like I said, Austin marathon in February. That'll be my focus for the next six months or so. After that, we'll see. I'm definitely intrigued by the 50K and 50-mile distance now that I've done this ultra as something you know, that I would like to, at maybe certain windows, experiment with and, and definitely try to get better at it. I, I feel like I have a lot of room to improve on the technical downhills, which would allow me to you know, not necessarily win these things, but to become more competitive and to maybe start thinking about time in some of these races. And so that would be potentially interesting for me at some point. I don't know when that would be. Definitely have no desire to do a hundred miler at all. None. The idea of running another 50 miles through the dark would, you know, is terrifying to me. So not going there. 
the one thing that is intriguing to me about the Squamish race is they have a 50-50 challenge. I, ah, you know, I mentioned yeah. it last week where it's 50 miles on Saturday, 50K on Sunday. That I do think, you know, there's no way I could have done it this time. I wasn't prepared for that. And I was debilitated on Sunday morning. <laughs> so, you know, it would have been a non-starter for me on day two of that challenge this time. But, but I do now in retrospect, it is an intriguing thing. That would be another challenge oh, to go. That to, might to, happen. To go after at some point. And so oh, I love it. So that, you know, I, 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 and some of the other rogues that we had out there, I mean, they're like, Hey, we should go do that next year. I'm like, I don't know if I'm ready to say that, <laughs> but you know, in the next five years, that would be something I would like to go try to do. And that would be kind of a fun and intriguing challenge. And I must say Gary Robbins, who is the race director for this race. I mean, they do a fabulous job. I mean, it's just an impeccably organized event, start to finish. Volunteers were amazing. Highly would highly recommend the race for anybody who wanted to do a 50 mile or a 50K. They also have a 23K on Sunday. Highly, highly recommend it. Beautiful race, beautifully put on. Definitely an amazing experience for those that might be intrigued to go race some trails in British Columbia. Well, and that part of the world in British Columbia is also quite spectacular in itself. And it's, you know, it's not that hard to get to, right? You fly into Vancouver, BC, and it's about an hour drive from there. And you just, you kind of go from big city to these like old growth pines and, you know, big boulders and big mountains. And it's, it really is one of the most beautiful places on earth. Yes. So beautiful. So, well, Chris, as interviews go, thanks for letting me do this with you. (laughs) Is there anything else you want to add in before we, before I turn it back to you? So I guess a couple, couple quick thoughts. One would be, uh, you know, just have to thank everybody for, for following along, for cheering. Not only, you know, I had listeners check in with me and I had obviously the whole rogue community from rogues here in Austin to our podcast group to rogues in Dallas and New York checking in with me on how things were going and following along. And of course we had rogues there competing and supporting and cheering and just being a part of that and being, being able to receive that, that love and that energy was a really powerful experience, maybe the most powerful part of the experience for me. So I'm super appreciative and grateful. I also have to thank my, my crazy training partners here in Austin who did some of these crazy sessions with me Adam, of course, Jacob Garcia, Kyle Norman, who would go out and do some of these insane hill sessions with me. Couldn't have done it without the community support. Or maybe I could have done it, but it would have been no fun at all. <laughs> and and so doing it with the group was awesome. Beyond that, you know, people are like, what's your big takeaway from this? And, you know, that one's Probably, probably I'm still putting my finger on, but I do want to come back to this, this idea of, of purity in terms of pursuit and, and emotion. And you, know, you, you mentioned my quote about the purity of teamwork and friendship that I share with Travis out there. I felt that purity of, of experience and across a lot of different emotions not only teamwork and friendship but also of of just movement purity of movement you know just getting to a point where you're 45 miles into this thing and you know you've got 
one big climb left. There's this big climb called the Mountain of Phlegm. Ew. It was the, the last big climb, probably appropriately named because I was probably, you know, <laughs> phlegming all over the trail at that point. But, but, but getting to that point where you're tired, but you know, you have this last climb and, and you're just focused on the next step. It's like one more step, one more step, keep moving. Right. And you, and it's just, it is cool to be at that place where all that matters is the next step and everything you've done that day has gotten you to a point where that's all that can matter. You know, you can't be worried about anything else. You can't be thinking about your work that has to happen on Monday or your stresses financially or your stresses emotionally or whatever. You can't be thinking about anything else. And as someone, you know, who has had a tough summer in terms of experiences, it was nice to be in that place of just kind of getting back to the purity of human emotion, the purity of human motion, emotion and motion, and the purity of just pursuing something that's big and then doing it. And I would say for me, it was very cleansing in a way to have this experience. And I think I'm still processing it and still you know, going through that cleansing process as I reflect on the experience, this also being a help, uh, helpful part of that. So that to me is sort of my big takeaway personally. And, you know, if I could give that experience to anybody, I would. And so, you know, so that's where I can then challenge the listeners to go find their way to get to that place. Well, it may be a 50 miler. It may be something else. Just sharing that with us. I mean, that I think, you know, that that's part of the beauty in what we do is, you know, this community of, of what we get. And, you know, I'm, I don't want to make you sad, but, you know, I really think your friend was out there with you running, you know, and every time you came to the top of one of those climbs and you looked down, he was like, yeah, you can do this. Just keep moving. I believe that. I believe that for sure. So thank you, Sasha. Thanks, Chris, for letting us into thank, your life. <laughs> thank you for helping me process it all. It's it's fun to talk about. I don't normally like talking about myself, but this is fun to talk about just because, you know, it was a powerful experience. I'm excited to share it. And, I'm, and I hope genuinely that it inspires others and that it inspires them to go do something where they can have a similar experience. So with that, I'm going to take the reins back from you. <laughs> <laughs> and and say thank you for for being willing to do this because you're the one that volunteered you just said hey this would be cool to do can i interview for this and i said yes let's do it <laughs> and so thank you for volunteering thank you for all the work and prep you did to do that you did a great job walking me through it so that was awesome we may have to have you on as a co-interviewer again at some point or or a, a guest interviewer that would be fun so anyway thank you for all of that and yeah. Thanks, we'll Chris. Wrap it here. Thanks. So there you go. Sasha interviewing me and that uh, went a little bit longer today. So thanks for allowing me the space and time to share. Thanks for listening. If you got all the way through, I really appreciate not only you being willing to share in the experience with me by listening to that, but also, of course, as I said, all of the love and support that was flowing my way on the day itself. Really appreciate all of that. So with that, we'll wrap it here. This has been episode 145 of the Running Rogue podcast. As always, you can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at Rogue Running. 
Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.